Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And welcome to another Thursday evening of political talk. And as always, so much to talk about. We, this week, in case you didn't notice, in case you missed it, there were congressional primaries in New York State. And we can go into the minutiae of why we have congressional primaries in June and regular primaries for other offices in September because that's typically in New York State known as primary day. And if it was a presidential year, we might have the presidential primary in March, congressional primaries in June, regular primaries in September. But that's just a symptom of some of the things that we've had of politicians not being able to get things together and not be able to get their act together and not being able to come to agreement about how what's best might be best overall for the state or for the people as opposed to just them and their own personal political advancement. But let's start with our sponsorship. Most importantly, we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. See more at BeckermanPR.com. And I would be remiss to not say another week goes by and we are still, and it's about two weeks now, it is two weeks now, we are without Eyal Yefrach, 19, Gilad Shar, 16, and Naftali Frankel, 16, three teenagers, children, really, if you will, and I have teenagers myself, kidnapped by Hamas, or purportedly by Hamas, at least Hamas hasn't, they haven't taken responsibility, they also haven't said it's a bad thing either. And uh, at this point, still, we don't seem to be much closer to finding them. Please uh, keep in mind, ha- have them in mind when you daven, and have them in mind when you think about them, and it's just an absolutely dastardly thing. So back to politics for a second, and we talk about the fact that politicians in Albany can't get together to decide on a single primary day for New York State. So we have multiple primary days, and we have multiple election days, and people talk about the fact that there was very small turnout, somewhere below 10%. But I was thinking, that got me to thinking about how many times during the year I have to vote or have to vote. I have the opportunity to vote, however you want to say it. I got to vote. Well, how many times there are elections where I live? And I live in the suburbs, not New York City. So we have multiple elections. And if you want to take it chronologically, according to the year, in May, we have an election for school board and a budget. In June, we have village elections. In July, we have sanitation district elections, and a lot of you out there might think, what is a sanitation district? And it's a little bit uh, too too in the woods, in the weeds, for us to really think about it. And we are then getting into the regular primary calendar, which is September. And I should also say, back in June, we also just had a congressional primary, so that's two in June. And if you're keeping score at home, so that's two, three, four times already. September, another fifth time. November, a sixth time. And for some people out there in neighboring areas, they have also what's known as a fire district. We happen not to have a fire district, but others do. That would be a seventh time to vote, and they have fire district elections in December. So as crazy as that is, folks, when people talk about the fact, wow, we can't have two primary days, in some areas we have – uh, we have up to seven elections and maybe maybe more. If you're out there and you have more than seven elections, seven times to the polls, you should think about that uh, right now. And it's just uh, another example of government run amok. So what else happened this week? We're going to get to the New York stuff. We've got a great show coming up. we got Liz Benjamin from Capital Tonight and YNN News. We have Josh Robin from New York One News, Ross Barkin from The Politicker, all going to discuss New York state elections, New York state primaries. But there was a lot that happened out there. And uh, this week, actually, some important legal decisions that happened this week and that we have particularly. And one was the fact that the Supreme Court overturned President Obama's ability to make recess appointments. And we have this uh, not recess appointments all the time, but recess appointments in very uh, when when there's a very short recess. And why is this important? Well, when you have gridlock and you have an opposing party there and you have people who won't confirm your nominees, you have a tendency to go ahead and make these recess appointments to get it so they don't need confirmation. And the Supreme Court said, well, if 
it's a short recess. It's not a formal recess. The president doesn't have that power to do that, and they overturned that. Also, in New York, we had a very important decision where the Court of Appeals went ahead and let stand the overturning of New York City's soda ban. Okay, remember the famous soda ban? Some of you out there might not remember the Bloomberg days, the the nanny state, uh, although they weren't that long ago. But uh, there was that soda ban, right? Can't be more than – you can't have those 32-ounce sodas, no big golfs for you. And they went ahead and overturned that. The courts overturned it, and the New York State Court of Appeals agreed to go ahead and let that overturning of that stand. Now, Bill de Blasio has said that he is going to bring that to the council, but there is a lot of opposition in the city council to that. And maybe we'll bring that up with our guests And what I wanted to get at actually at this was the fact that the House of Representatives this week announced that they are going to sue the president. Yes, they're going to take the president to court now for for flouting the will of the legislative branch. So you're going to have a lawsuit, which is basically about John Boehner versus Barack Obama and You know, when you think about the separation of powers, not to get to government 101 here, but just to think for a second about what the we elect the legislature to do and what we elect the president to do. It's to govern that they should go ahead and enact laws and carry out laws on behalf of the people, not when and come to an agreement with regard to their differences. I think that that is a very important thing to think about. Why should they have to go to court? It's like saying two children fighting and saying, well, we need an adult to go ahead and make this decision for us. We need a referee to come in to be the adult in the room to go ahead and explain to them, okay, this is how you should behave. And when you think about it, we really need to have some adults in the room. And I respect the people in Washington very much. I respect what they do and I respect – Anybody who wants to be in public service, and it's tough. It's tough work. It's thankless work, and you're always at the mercy of the public. You're always at the mercy of trying to get reelected. No question about it. And I think, you know, we certainly learned about that a couple of weeks ago with the House Majority Leader Eric Cantor going down. But more about that at the end of the show. Make some comments. But I think that when you when you come to the point that you have to take the other branch to court in order to get them to say, well, they're not doing their job, so we need a judge to go ahead and explain to them, go ahead and do your job. We've kind of defeated the whole purpose here of sending people to Washington in order to govern, in order to take care of the matters at hand, to take care of the matters of state, to take care of the things that need to be taken care of. Because if they can't do that and they need somebody else to be their arbiter, then we're going to go we're, we're really stuck we're really stuck in in a in in a rut that we can't that we can't come out of so i'm really disappointed with the fact that disappointed in the congress i'm disappointed in the president i think we all should be the fact that really politically and everything seems to be about the midterms everything seems to be about 2016 Everybody's just jockeying for political advantage, and there's so much at stake. There's so much that needs to be done in this Congress, in this country, to get things done. And before we get into our subject matters at hand, I just want to give you give, bring up one political uh, tidbit as, uh, I guess, a little bit comical. One thing I noticed this week, we talked about the New York State primaries, and one of the winners of the New York State primaries was a gentleman named Grant Lawley. And Grant Lawley has now, I think, and I remember growing up that this, or growing up, I guess, uh, for for a while, it goes back, I think, two decades. Grant Lawley used to run against Congressman Gary Ackerman for years. And then he ran for Congress again and again and again. And he won his primary this week on the North Shore to run against Congressman Steve Israel. And how do, how do I know about this? Well, somehow I got in his email list. He started sending me emails. And Grant Lawley won his primary again. Congratulations, Grant Lawley. They give him about as much chance of winning. Um, well, let's not go there. But uh, 
he is now, I think, 20 years trying to run for Congress. And, you know, we see that, you know, you run once, you don't win. You run twice. Okay, you always, voters usually give you a second shot. You run three times, they generally are not going to vote for you. Like we had actually upstate Matt Doheny, who, who uh, by a lot, all intents and purposes would have been a very formidable candidate in the general election. He lost twice under different circumstances to Congressman Bill Owens. Bill Owens is now retiring. And he, and Bill Owens decided to retire. There was another candidate in the race, Elise Stefanik, a young 29 year old, uh, up and coming Republican. And Matt Doheny decided he was going to get into the race because now it was an open seat. It looked a little more attractive. And uh, he, he self-made man, has some money, decided to, to run, figure there'd be good in name recognition. He got beat pretty soundly in this primary. And I think what, what it tells a lot of people is that you got to go ahead and, you know, you got to you can't go ahead and run that third time. You can't. Uh, that third time is really going to be uh, for a lot of for a lot of candidates, the kiss of death. And we had another one going on in the first district of uh, New York State, which was for George Demos running against Senator Lee Zeldin for the right to challenge Tim Bishop. He also ran for a third time. He also got beaten pretty soundly. But uh, let's uh, let's get into some of the New York stuff, because uh, right now we got a lot to talk about. And I want to welcome our first guest, Liz Benjamin, host of Capital Tonight. At YNN News, a longtime Albany blogger, pundit, and uh, uh, observer of the political scene. Welcome back to Spin Class. Uh, hi, it's good to be here. So, Liz, uh, big week going on, but uh, I know there's so much to talk about with regard to those primaries, and and we I, I pontificated a little bit about why primary congressional primaries seem to be in June, and mm. uh, they, and we can't get it together in New York State. But Mm -hmm. let's leave that aside for a second, because I think much bigger news right now for the state is the Italian style parliament we now have in the New York State Senate. And uh, (laughs) what what is going on in the New York State Senate right now? Give us an idea and give us an idea what the ramifications are. Uh, How much time do we have? I'm sorry. Uh, Well, you know, why don't you condense that all into 90 seconds? Yeah, right. Okay. Um, Okay. so basically uh, there was a situation in the Senate. Uh, the Democrats controlled the Senate very briefly for the first time in, I don't know, 60-some-odd years. And it was very tumultuous and dysfunctional. They had been in the minority for a long time, and they weren't ready for prime time, essentially. And uh, during their brief two-year tenure, there was a Senate coup in which two of their members bolted and, and briefly gave uh, support to the Republicans. And then one of them went back, and then the Senate was deadlocked. I'm sure your listeners remember all of this. They're pretty politically astute. So so the Democrats subsequently, you know, just couldn't keep it together. They finally reorganized and, and took back control of the chamber, but voters were had had enough, and so they returned the control of the Senate to the Republicans. The only trouble is that enrollment, of course, in uh, New York is beneficial to the Democrats and not to the Republicans. And even despite a very politically driven redistricting process, the Republicans have had an uphill battle in their efforts to maintain the majority. So the last time around, they really didn't have it. Uh, and the only way that they could have had it was by cutting a power-sharing deal with a breakaway conference that's known as the Independent Democratic Conference, the IDC, led by Jeff Klein of the Bronx. So they did. They cut this deal, and they had instead, for the first time, a bipartisan, bifurcated power-sharing deal in which it required agreement from both Jeff Klein and Senator Dean Skelos, the GOP head, to uh, bring anything to the floor. And that worked for a while. But then uh, now that the governor is gearing up for re-election, uh, the liberals are asserting themselves, and they want to see more, quote-unquote, progressive legislation, a statewide public campaign finance system, the Women's Equality Act, the DREAM Act, and the Republicans couldn't or didn't want to let that sort of thing come to the floor. So the governor wanted the Working Families Party line, and in order to get it, he had to cut a deal, an endorsement deal, that required him to say, okay. I will help you flip the Senate back into Democratic hands and try and get the IDC to reunite with the regular Democrats. And effectively, he and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and the Working Families Party and the labor union movement and the liberal activists all pressured the IDC members and, and threatened them with primaries until yesterday, Jeff Klein basically succumbed and announced he would, instead of going back form a power-sharing deal with the Democrats, but not until after the November elections when he sees where the lay of the land is. So that's effectively where we are right now. 
Okay, now that was a quick cliff notes. I have to say, I'm very impressed with the condensation of that entire narrative. <laughs> so what you have here is two groups of Democrats, right? Uh, essentially fighting, and they're not joining back together. They're they're staying as two separate uh, uh, conferences. You also have an election in between some of this, so the balance of power itself could be upset. In the meantime, meaning that Could. we don't know how many Democrats and Republicans are going to actually be in the chamber or independent Democratic conference people are going to be in the chamber come uh, November when this deal is supposed to uh, come into place. And right. uh, at the same time, there is, I, I guess, this uh, big question out there is, you know, does Andrew is Andrew Cuomo's heart really in this? Does he really, really want a fully mainline Democratic Senate. So, uh, so, so give us, give us an idea about, you know, where, you know, where this actually goes. Is this real? Is this not real? Or is this just more Albany, uh, yeah. Albany subterfuge or insider politics that really won't have any real effect in the right. except, well, except we don't to negate know the fact is that, the answer. that Jeff I mean, Klein won't the, have a primary. That's the first part, right? I mean, we don't know. I think that um, Jeff Klein in subsequent interviews has sort of been saying, look, I said I wanted a power-sharing deal. I still believe in bipartisanship, but I have these priorities. I said I wanted to get progressive legislation done, and, and the Republicans aren't willing to do it, and so I need to look elsewhere. That's similar to what the governor's saying, though. The governor's issuing a lot of mixed messages, saying on the one hand, that he wants to help the Democrats. He's disappointed in the failure of the of the Senate to get any progressive legislation passed, but then going out on the hustings and putting his arms around Senate Republicans and talking about how great of a partner they were. So it's unclear exactly how active the governor's going to be. It's unclear who's going to end up with what after November. I mean, right now, technically speaking, nobody's got a majority without the IDC because there's two vacant seats one a Democrat seat in Brooklyn, the other a Republican seat on Long Island. There are two Democrats who've been effectively excommunicated from the conference, Not both IDC and the Senate Democrats. Nobody wants them because they've been accused of corruption, although um, Senate, uh, Senator Malcolm Smith just recently, or at least briefly, beat the rats because of a mistrial in, in his case, although yeah, he's he will got be a retried. Six-month reprieve. Right. So he'll, he'll run again, and it's unclear if... Um, if uh, Leroy Comrie will, will manage to unseat him, so we'll see. I mean, there's definitely history in, in Albany of people accused of things and under indictment being reelected. Um, one of them actually turned out to be uh, working for the U.S. attorney, but that's a totally different question. <laughs> but uh, he wasn't indicted at the time, but he knew he would be uh, indicted for perjury. That would be Nelson Castro. So then you have a situation where you've got one Democrat, who I know your listeners are familiar with, Simcha Felder, who's conferencing with the Republicans, who's made it clear that he'll go to whoever has the most power and can do the most for his constituents, regardless of what their the party affiliation is. There's a lot of balls in the air. I, I think that generally speaking, from a political standpoint, people think that it's more likely that the Democrats are going to pick up seats than the Republicans because of the enrollment, perhaps because of the governor's involvement. There is a governor's race that is also going on, and maybe that will have some down-ballot impact, though there haven't really been coattails historically, not like what you see in a presidential year for Democrats. So right now we're a little bit in a holding pattern. There certainly won't be any special session to try and get any of this done because there's not enough votes in, in either conference for anything at this point. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's really up in the air and it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. But intentions have been stated and uh, it's Albany, so intentions can change. Okay, so just this marriage, if you will, between uh, Senator Dean Skelos and Senator Jeff Klein. Uh, for a long time, the two of them and even the governor together with them had kind of talked about how productive this marriage had been on right. so much legislation affecting the state of New York. Along comes the Working Families Party, and which is, of course – You'll have to explain this a little bit to me in the audience because I'm trying to get the whole idea here. Okay, the Working Family Party is a separate party. They are not right. part of the Democratic Party. They no. are the Working Families Party, and yep. they have essentially defined, at least from my perspective, they've defined who is a good Democrat and who is not a good Democrat. Meaning that 
somehow the Democratic Party and perhaps uh, it, it seems strange that a powerful and a sm- smart and keen politician like Andrew Cuomo would allow uh, this group to define who the good Democrats are. But that seems to be what's happened. And uh, they've tried to cast out the, these uh, these members, uh, the IDC members, as being bad Democrats and other Democrats for that matter. So why well, I mean, has why have the mainline Democrats given so much power here. to the Working Families Party? Yeah, I would argue there's a bigger thing that's going on here, Michael, which is, you know, this perception of the rise of the left, you know, the Elizabeth Warren slash Bill de Blasio left. And Bill de Blasio's come from behind win in the New York City mayoral race certainly empowered the Working Families Party, which is really a coalition of organized labor organizations. So like SEIU 1199, Hotel Trades, um, CWA, and also then subsequently some activism types like uh, Citizens Union, right? These, this party really put a lot of effort into assisting Bill de Blasio over the years. Bill de Blasio has a very strong relationship with labor. So his election reinvigorated this party, which had a problem back uh, in 2009. It was actually under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office for um, its former for-profit arm, Data and Field Services, was allegedly doing cut-rate work, if you will, for its preferred candidates, which, of course, to circumvent the limits that, that exist in New York City, which would be illegal, they were cleared, although this, there's a special prosecutor and it's been lingering on for quite some time. So it, that that party had a, little, a couple of hard years and, and in 2010 actually was forced to accept all of Andrew Cuomo's um, new New York platform which included some things that the party hated, like a pay freeze for public employees and a 2% property tax cap, because minor parties, well, all parties, only exist as long as they have a ballot line, official status. And in order to have official status, you need your gubernatorial candidate to get 50,000 votes or more. So they really wanted Andrew Cuomo in 2010. Now, because they thought his name would attract voters, and it did, and they lived. Now, four years later, it's a little bit different. Andrew Cuomo is under fire from the left for his fiscal conservative policies. He does have a socially liberal uh, social agenda, but that's a different story. I think the left really is upset with him about taxes and corporate spending, and he, if he has his eye on perhaps something national, like, say, the White House, he wants to try and keep his relationship with the left as good as possible, and that's what this whole thing is born out of. Fascinating. And it's hard to really, for the layman, for the lay person out there to really follow all these dynamics within the political. I mean, this is really, uh, you know, the inside, inside stuff of what Mm -hmm. motivates a lot of politicians to make the decisions that they do. And a lot of times it's way before any of us, any of us regular people out there get any say at the ballot box. Yes. I mean, certainly... Now there's a primary. I mean, interestingly, so the Working Families Party created a candidate named Zephyr Teachout, who is a uh, Fordham law professor, and had her threatened to challenge the governor. She actually did challenge the governor for the Working Families Party endorsement, challenged him on the left. And a poll, a public poll, indicated that if, in fact, he had a candidate on the left in the general election, he would lose up to 13 percentage points in the final but tally. But not lose the, the election. What's that? He wasn't going to lose the election, though. No, no, of course not. No, no. He's very, you know, he's, 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 the likelihood of him losing the election is infinitesimal. But the idea that he wants to run up the tally so he can then subsequently take this number, this re-elect number, and, and put it out there and say, look how strong I am, look how much I've accomplished, look at this re-election number, you know, consider me for, in 2016, assuming that something, you know, happens with Hillary Clinton and she doesn't run, uh, he would be then um, a candidate or or at least a, a considered a viable candidate. So he wants that tally to be high. He really didn't want a liberal third-party candidate in the general election. Now this uh, Zephyr Teachout is not uh, running against him uh, because she didn't get the Working Families Party, no- Party nod. The party used her as a foil in order to get the governor to uh, agree to what it wanted him to do, and he did. Uh, but now she's primarying him in the Democratic primary, or she's trying. She has to collect petition. So voters, to your point, won't have a say in all of this until, you know, the next primary, which of course would be in September. 
You know, we talk so much, Liz, about the idea that the uh, that the Republicans are at war with themselves, the Deep Party, the establishment, and that's taking place in many primaries throughout the country. But you could also make the case that the progressive left embodied in the Working Families Party, who want the Working Families Party type Democrats, are pri- possibly the Tea Party, if you will, of the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate that sort of. Well, language, I don't mean but... Tea Party in like they, they agree with the Tea Party. What I'm saying is they're their group that, you know, that that's very organized, very militant, very uh, very active. And they have a very specific agenda and they have some very specific orthodoxies with regard to, you know, what, what they, and if you can't veer from those orthodoxies. I mean, yeah. to really, to, you take Andrew Cuomo in totality, to put him in most states, he's not exactly a conservative governor. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Right? No. So, so it's hard to, for me, you know, to kind of think that you take Andrew Cuomo and he is not, he is not democratic enough. He's very much the Democratic Party. Well, this is also, I mean, let's just remember, New York is an unusually liberal state. I mean, uh, certainly we have, uh, particularly the further you get upstate, the more conservative things get, with the exception of the urban centers like, say, Buffalo, Albany, Rochester, Syracuse. But uh, particularly in the rural areas, uh, the more rural areas, things are more conservative. Uh, but New York, on the whole, particularly because you have such a driving force out of New York City, which is definitely liberal, um, is not a state that can be easily compared to, you know, another state, not a Midwestern state, for example. I mean, by Midwestern standards or by Southern standards or by Texas standards, certainly, uh, Andrew Cuomo is, you know, liberal. Right. And there's just one last question, Liz, for you as uh, our time for this segment grows short. Uh, talk about the role of Bill de Blasio for a second, because we had, I think, during the session and for a couple months, you had the, we had this power balance where Cuomo had the upper hand and de Blasio was kind of playing the second fiddle. Now in all these machinations, it seems that de Blasio is sitting there with the upper hand. Is there an imbalance of power now within the, the relationship between the two of those? Well, I mean, look, there, there's uh, this is always a shifting situation, certainly, but there is an inherent imbalance of power that favors – the governor, whoever that person may be. And as much as people don't like to accept it, New York City is a creature of the state, like all cities are. And there's not a lot that the city can do, that the leaders of the city can do, without asking for permission from the state, which is why you saw Bill de Blasio, hat in hand, up in Albany, asking for permission to tax high-income earners so he could pay for his universal pre-K program, which he had promised and said it was going to be you know, a helpful and bridging the income inequality gap, which is sort of his cause celeb, right? He, you also have to keep in mind that he wants to have a better relationship in Albany than his predecessor, Mayor Bloomberg, who really had sort of infamously rocky and, and unsuccessful relationships in Albany. Although he was a huge patron of the Senate Republicans, that's where he put uh, his faith and his money. Um, but he wasn't enormously successful in getting his big ticket items passed, like, say, the West Side Stadium or congestion pricing. And Bill de Blasio would like his legacy to be more successful in Albany. So he's trying to remake the Senate in a way that is more conducive to approving his progressive agenda. In terms of, And now, you know, the governor's involved, and, and he has his ideas about what the Senate should look like and who should be sort of the big Democratic shaker, if you will, and I'm sure that it rankled him to some degree that Bill de Blasio is the darling of the left and was getting a lot of press nationally, and the governor is, you know, has a trouble on the left. So this deal that they've cut in the Senate to flip the Senate into Democratic hands, you know, the governor is deeply involved in that. The, The statement that came out yesterday from Jeff Klein announcing that he would cut a deal with the Democrats after the November elections. That was a statement from himself and Governor Cuomo, not himself and Bill de Blasio, which is right. telling. Okay, well, there's no question that you need somebody like Liz Benjamin in order to follow all the goings-on in Albany and throughout well, New York State. Well, I have a State. spreadsheet, the, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry? 
I have a spreadsheet. That's the only way I yeah, can Yeah, yeah, I think so. Something like uh, those World Cup brackets to go ahead and try and follow everything that's going on yeah. with all those tiebreakers that, that come along with it. It's really incredible. So, Liz, thanks for taking us through it. Thanks for uh, once again joining us and giving us the update uh, here on Spin Class. Hope to have you again soon. My pleasure. So this is Spin Class, and we're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. I want to welcome Josh Robin, who is political reporter and uh, Albany bureau chief at New York One News, also occasionally a host of Inside City Hall, New York One's nightly political program. Uh, Josh, welcome to Spin Class. Manishma, Michael. Nice to be here. Oh, so great. Josh, <laughs> leading with the Hebrew, fantastic. Uh, I, you know, I, I would go on in Hebrew because I think it's an, an important, we, but we might, uh, you know, possibly some of those political junkies out there, it can be a little bit, uh, difficult, but thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for targeting the audience. So, My pleasure. Uh, well, One correction. Well done. Former, well former Albany Bureau guy. Former, uh, excuse me. I apologize. No okay. problem. And what's the official title now, Josh? Just political reporter and anchor. Okay, political reporter and anchor for New York One News. Uh-huh. Well, if we if we had do-overs, we would go ahead and do it over. But uh, let's jump right into political primaries and the like. And, you know, I, I lamented at the beginning of the show, so I'm not going to do it again. But, of course, I'm doing it backhanded again. The fact that New York State has multiple primary days, which just seems so absurd. Yeah. But we had primaries, congressional primaries throughout the state. And some of them were particularly interesting. Some of them were even competitive. And uh, we had a number of... People who have run a couple times and uh, some making it making it in. We also had a very interesting one in the Hudson Valley that pitted the general election opponents against each other. Uh, Nan Hayworth and Sean Patrick Maloney. That's a rematch, but they mm-hmm. faced each other on the uh, on the Independence Party line. And with uh, Nan Hayworth, the Republican, actually edging out Sean Patrick Maloney. And you see a little bit of, of, of the craziness of these primaries because I think the total turnout in that race was like 2,000 votes. Um, but uh, but the big one was Charlie Rangel. Okay, yeah. Charlie Rangel, the dean of the congressional delegation, one of the longest-serving members of Congress, founder of the Congressional Black Caucus. We had him on last week. So clearly the man was was all over the place. He was campaigning. He pulled it out again. So talk a little bit about Charlie Rangel and 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 the race and what propelled him to victory. Well, it was just a really, you know, interesting it's always interesting and, and dare I say fun to cover Charlie Rangel because he's at this point I think that he just doesn't really, you know, care too much about being um, you know, entirely politically correct and uh scripted on message. I mean he's into his 80s, and he always had that kind of a kind of classic streak to him. And you know, he's he's there's plenty of things that you can say. I think um, justifiably about him and about some of the ethical challenges from the past. And his politics might not be yours, but I think everyone can agree that he's a colorful individual. So you know, it was it was sort of fun to watch. Um, he faced for the second time Adriano Espaillat, who is a state senator and former assemblyman from Upper Manhattan. He would be the first Dominican American. Um, elected to the House of Representatives had he won. And the challenge, again, had Espaillat downplaying a bit uh, his ethnicity. He didn't work for him last time, obviously, when he lost to Wrangell. So this time the thought was people know that he'd be the first Dominican-American. Now it's time to build more coalitions and to stress common uh, issues that unite people, be it rent, uh, be it uh, immigration status, um, be it inequality. So that was the the set the uh, the setting. Um, Espaillat, uh, obviously, our viewers, our listeners know now that Espaillat fell short again, and the postmortems are happening now. Um, I should also add that Espaillat only a few hours ago actually conceded to Wrangle. Previously, he said that all the absentee ballots and so forth should be counted, but now, after we called it and after the Associated Press called it, it became clear that Espaillat was going to fall short again. And, post- and he conceded. Go ahead. And then announced that he's going to run for his seat in the state senate again. Correct. He's Part of the pressure there Trump. was that he can't run for both seats at the same time, even though that election had already happened. He can't contest the vote at the same time that he is running for state senate. Correct. Yes, and he was being, and now he's being challenged by former city councilman um, Robert Jackson, an African American um, city councilman. Interesting. Correct. Enough. Correct. So there'll be a, a, a repeat of that. Um, I would say by now, I, you know, there hasn't been any polling that I've seen, but I think that um, Espaillat is the prohibitive favorite to uh, retain his seat. But it nonetheless will be uh, an interesting, um, an interesting matchup. And um, you know, I'm curious to know your thoughts too. The postmortems, uh, you know, obviously the the real reason, and this sounds sort of you know um, obvious, but people should just realize that more people obviously voted for Wrangell than they did for. 
um, Espaillat. And I think that, you know, they just wanted that, you know, there's all, there's all of these reasons and we can go into them, but I think that people just thought that Charlie Wrangell should have another chance and to retire how he wants to retire. He's, he's seen as someone who, who brings home a lot of largesse to, um, his district. He has represented them, um, you know, for many, many years, and it's tough to knock out someone who's been in office since, uh, you know, as, as, I, as I've written, since uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono played uh, the Apollo Theater back in 1971, an anti-Vietnam War uh, concert. So, oh, it, what a it, great day that was. Oh, wait, I wasn't alive then, but that's okay. But, uh, but yeah, as far as my take, I mean, this was supposed to be the time that Espaillat was supposed to win. And, and, you know, I, I talked about a second ago about people, uh, running once, they run twice, and then they run a third time. So Espaillat has now run twice for this seat. And voters are not, are kind of, okay, you can run the second time, but that third time you seem to be kind of out of it. Uh, w- but this was supposed to be his time. He had, last time around, everybody was against him, or at least most of the institutional support was against him. But this, this time, time around, the institutional support was heavily for him, or at least it was split. Yes. Um, I think, well, you know, it just shows you the kind of limits that endorsements have. Endorsements are good for if someone brings a large political organization with them or carry a lot of clout. But, you know, it shows you that, that sometimes it, it doesn't work. You know, endorsements are good because you can say that I have this person's support and um, it gets us to cover an announcement. It gives you something to announce, but they don't always work. And it shows you that Melissa Mark Viverito's depth of support in East Harlem is pretty shallow um, for one. Oh, yeah, it's know. really shallow for a city council speaker. I, I, Correct. I, I mean, I, that's I got to tell you, look at that map and it's one of the most sh- more shocking things that that seems to be, if not the central Harlem you know, area right around where Charlie Rangel lives, you know, that Lenox Avenue area, which is still heavily African-American. But you take the East Harlem area, which uh, is Melissa Mark Viverito's base. That is her district. Mm-hmm. And she she really didn't deliver anything. No, she didn't. <laughs> and that was the key place, right? I mean, East Harlem is where it all went down because we knew that Washington Heights was going to go for Espaillat, and probably the Bronx again would go for Espaillat, although um, he needed to have more turnout than, than happened last time. Um, but the battleground was in, was in East Harlem. So, um, you know, there's also this thing that's kind of an undercurrent, which I haven't been able to fully report out, which is that there's this kind of antipathy, it would appear, between Puerto Ricans and, Puerto Ricans and Dominican Americans. Um, you know, there's, see here from some people that they have this stereotype and the other have this stereotype, but Rangel, even though, and he's half, his father was Puerto Rican, but he was very much of a deadbeat dad, um, people felt nonetheless that he was one of their own. He's certainly been around there a lot, and as the campaign manager for Rangel has said, he spent an awful lot of time in East Harlem. I was there with him a few days before the election. And people, you know, see him as a very familiar uh, face, and he was dancing to the salsa music and so forth. So there, there was no reason, I think, to um, to drop him. The, the other issue, the other issue, is that there was a lack of issues in this. I mean, if you really go through it, um, the differences that Espaillat was trying to carve out when it comes to Wrangell seem to be pretty flimsy, and they were not articulated particularly well during the debates. There wasn't that crispness, that fun that you saw from Charlie Rangel, even when he did that Mishigas with the phone and, and so forth, um, pretending that he was on the phone. People sort of saw it maybe as a little crazy, but nonetheless as something distinctive, whereas Espaillat during his matchups was seen as more stilted and, and less crisp, and that probably, um, that probably didn't do him many favors. I have to say, it seemed to me that Charlie Rangel was really just having a good time out there, which uh, which seemed to be, you know, he was jovial, he was smiling, he was all over the place. And I actually said to him last week when he was on the show, I said, mm-hmm. I, at your age, I want to be as spry and running around. I I was running, walking down Fifth Avenue uh, with him in the Israel Day Parade, uh, celebrate Israel Parade, and I I couldn't believe how how uh, sprightly he was. It was it was very impressive. And we're talking to Josh Robin here, the political reporter and anchor. At New York One News, I want to welcome another voice, uh, Ross Barkin from the Politicker, uh, the Observer, uh, and uh, who writes a who's a contributed blog and the Observer uh, newspaper and a frequent commentator uh, here on this show. Ross, welcome back to Spin Class. Hi, thanks for having me on again. 
Okay, so Ross, you're on with Josh here. We're just discussing the differences in the two races between Charlie Rangel and Adriano Espaillat. And, you know, this time around, there seems to be some winners and losers out there uh, with regard to which which politicians or other politicians were on different camps. And everybody, aside from Barack Obama, pretty much, and maybe Bill de Blasio, uh, had to choose a side here. And uh, so there were some uh, there were some winners and losers. It seemed to me, and I wasn't counting it up, that more politicians seemed to feel that it was Espaillat's time that he was going to win than did Charlie Rangel. Definitely, uh, you had a, it is, the whole, basically a, a large chunk of the city's democratic establishment was either with Adriano Espaillat or, or with no one, and and they were real subs. Charlie Rangel, I mean, Bill De Blasio here, I think can still be called a loser. He, uh, he chose not to endorse in the race, something Michael Bloomberg, you know, is an independent and a Republican did in 2012. Um, you know, Scott Stringer, you know, went, and obviously most of Mark and Rita know you were talking about, went with Espiat. I think there's a general consensus among a lot of the people in the city and on the ground that we better get on Espiat's good side now because he's going to be the congressman and it's in our political interest to go with him. And obviously, you know, it backfired. I mean, I, I wrote a column actually on the winners, not, on the winners and losers today on, on the Observer's website. And, um, you know, I, I identified Melissa. Another one is the Reverend Al Sharpton, someone who, you know, really does not like Charlie Rangel. He's made it very clear he was sending a lot of signals um, to, to not support Charlie Rangel. And the Harlem Black Establishment completely ignored that and voted overwhelmingly for Charlie. So, I mean, Al Sharpton doesn't look good coming out of this. I don't think certainly the controller, the speaker, and uh, the mayor as well. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing, Josh, when you think about it, how the the we don't look enough into the I, I guess the subtext of some of uh, these ethnic divides. And you mentioned mm. a second ago about Dominicans versus Puerto Ricans, but it also exists within the African American community, uh where you have uh where you have native born, I guess, uh, uh traditional African American communities, you have Caribbean American communities, mm-hmm. you know, you have Southeast Queens versus Brooklyn mm-hmm. versus the Central Harlem versus the Bronx. I mean there there's it's hard sometimes you don't have that kind of unity that's just assumed from the outside that all the minorities or this people of color coalition is all united together. Yeah, yeah and you know, um even even more than that, and, and Michael Powell wrote about that, um, I think it's in today's paper, you know, sometimes that doesn't matter. Sometimes people, sometimes someone who is, um, you know, African-American is going to vote for a white candidate. And I actually think that's kind of a good thing that they're, that the um, these ethnic loyalties are not always, uh, you know, so profound. Um, and uh that, you know, that happened in this situation to, uh, you know, to some degree. At least you could say that a number of these voters were actually looking at the candidates and seeing if, um, you know, what were more important issues to them than how that person looks or what was their first language or, you know, what, where their mother or father were born. So, yeah, I mean, ethnic politics is still very much alive within New York, but, um, you know, it doesn't, it's, it isn't always as neat uh, as, as some people, as observers would, would think it would be. And Ross, let's just go back for a second to back to Melissa Mark Viverito, city council speaker, second most powerful person in the city. And she's supposed to have some political weight to her. But one thing I read, and I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I believe she in her own primary last year got a very, very small number for somebody of her stature. Uh, I think yeah. some of the 30s, like maybe 30 percent, 35 percent, something like that. I mean, a very, very small number. It's not like she's winning with commanding leads in her own district. Mm-hmm. Right. She, she got 35 percent of the vote. Um, the context there is it was a redrawn district that included a lot more of the South Bronx, where she's not well known. But it is true. I mean, her clout in the district is definitely not very high. I mean, there have been a lot of stories written about the fact that if she comes from a more wealthier background and she's resented by some people in the community for sure. And I, I think what we've learned is just because you're you know, a speaker or you hold a high legislative office, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily powerful in your district. Christine Quinn, 
um, lost her own, I believe her own ED in the mayoral race, let's not forget. I believe de Blasio, they've beaten her in Chelsea, and she didn't do great in her own re-election bid in 2009. So being speaker doesn't necessarily confer you this, this great power to move votes. And at the same time, I think Melissa Margarito, um, while she, her, her clout and her stature is growing within East Harlem, she, she's proved herself not to be someone who can reliably pull a lot of votes for someone else. It's very interesting how these how these things come back, and I guess we're still learning the lessons of the Eric Cantor defeat, and I, I mentioned, keep mentioning that because I think it's so instructive for politicians to understand who the people are who actually elect them, and it's not always the insiders, it's the people who actually go to the polls, uh, so, we, so there is a little bit of that. That they have to go, and perhaps you know she, you know she should tend a little bit more to what's going on on the inside of her district uh, for a second. But you know, either throw a question out to either of you is with regard to the New York Times endorsements, and particularly in Manhattan, but maybe not in Upper Manhattan, but I, I don't know. But in Manhattan, the New York Times endorsement is supposed to be the heavyweight endorsement, you know, and I think that uh, Adriano has got the New York Times endorsement. For, I, I don't want to get into the dynamics of why or what, but that. Probably conferred a certain amount of maybe inevitability around it, right? There's certainly imagine uh, that a number, of, particularly the white voters, are supposed to follow that. But Charlie Rangel seemed to have done well amongst white voters. So what is it with the New York Times endorsement that seems to not be able to deliver for candidates? Well, I, I think um, newspaper endorsements in general are colossally overrated, and I, I work for a newspaper, and uh, you know, the, 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 oh, we'll make sure nobody else very much um, overblown. And I think. You even the Times endorsement to an extent, I think if we actually look at races, look at races like, for example, the Upper West Side Council race last year, the Upper West Side is kind of preeminent Times territory. And the Times endorsed candidate in an Upper West Side Council race did not win that council race that Helen Rosenthal won. She, she did not have the, the Times endorsement. So I, I just think newspaper endorsements in general are, are, are very much overrated. I don't think a lot of people are taking their cues from the editorial page of a newspaper anymore. That doesn't mean news can't affect how people vote. I mean, I think certainly the coverage of like the de Blasio administration has affected how people view him in a lot of ways. But in terms of endorsements, especially we take white voters and affluent voters, you know, they are educated on the race, and they kind of know a bit going in who they're going to vote for. And just because the Times says vote for this, you know, state senator, uh, you know, this Dominican guy who maybe doesn't have a robust legislative record, uh, we know Charlie, and we know Charlie's son will vote for Charlie. So I, I think in general, the Times and all, and all newspaper endorsements and all endorsements in general, like you said, that don't bring manpower to the table are very much overblown. Yeah, I totally agree. I actually have to run, Mike, but I, I wanted to just add one thing that, um, so <clears throat> I don't know if you had mentioned this before I came on air, but um, Al Sharpton is having a unity rally uh, for all three of these uh, candidates <laughs> on Saturday, which shows you that he's just trying, you know, that he's trying to retain his clout, even when, you know, in this situation, obviously it didn't go the way he would have wanted it to go. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I saw that. I mean, perhaps that was just with the idea that, uh, Espayat was still going to be in the race, but now he's not. But, you know, Al Sharpton has always been a master at co-opting. Uh, <laughs> so I, I imagine that I won't see him uh, on the unemployment line anytime soon. No, I think you're right. Um, okay, Josh, thank you very much for joining us here on Spin Class. Okay, my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Well, We'll do it again. So, Ross, uh, back to you for a second. Uh, with regard to SBI was supposed to have this vaunted political machine. He was the rise of the Dominicans. It was this uh, – he, he, he had helped elect a number of other people to office. Uh, what what does that say about his ability to, to kind of get it over the top? I mean you, you, you go ahead and you, and you try and assassinate a very pro- predominant politician and you, you fail once, you fail twice. Uh, can he run again? You know, it, it's an excellent question. I, I think he can run again. I mean, right now he, he's uh, trying to protect his state senate. He said he'd seek that again. Um, I think, you know, his issue has really been, you know, having crossover appeal. I mean, he's very strong in his base. He is a power broker, really uptown, and voted overwhelmingly for SBOT, you know, Washington Heights, Inwood, that area. You know, he's very tight with the elected officials there. But his issue is going into 2016, I think, is that, He's no longer necessarily going to be a, a cause candidate. You know, you're assuming Charlie Rangel retires, you're going to have an open field. And the question is, if you have an open field, 
is the establishment going to coalesce around Adrian Esplayat for the third time, or are they going to look to someone else? And we don't know who's going to want to run in 2016. I mean, maybe Ruben Diaz in the Bronx gets hungry to take a free shot at it. Maybe Melissa Mark Viverito. You know, maybe uh, Keith Wright. I'm not saying Esplayat can't win uh, a crowded divided field that he definitely can but uh he's definitely damaged good to an extent you know not being able to build on his 2012 margin i think which was a colossal disappointment to their campaign and what does this say about uh, the state of of democratic politics in in new york city and the i, I we're when you take all the pieces and you, you the winners the losers the unions were all over the place. The different different people were all over the place. Uh, you know, we're some were trying to say Charlie Rangel was there too long, but nobody was really able to get him. Those that were saying that were never really able to get him to go quietly, if you will. There wasn't that strong, I guess, party leadership that was able to push him out. Um, and you know, we're what, what does that say about the you know, the governor and, and the mayor, the governor was on Charlie Rangel's side, but only at the end. Uh, you know, nobody – this very messy situation was really uh, not contained in a, in a way. And it, it almost, you know, was the headline of the night, if you want to flip it, as far as the mess that you had for the Republicans of Mississippi – uh, between McDaniel and, and uh, Thad Cochran. Uh, you know, that kind of very nasty uh, uh, bifurcation of the party uh, between, yeah. you know, one, one, one to another. You know, I, I hate to, I hesitate to use the word civil war because that really wasn't what it was. But there was just this this thinking of, you know, can't these guys, you know, kind of get it together and figure it out, if you will? I mean, primaries are good things. But on the other hand, you know, this just didn't seem to be about any issues at all. Sure. Um, yeah, it was, I, I it was would more say about this the, guy's the too difference. old. Sorry, I, I was saying it's more about this guy's too old. I'm saying like Dan Cochran was too old, Charlie right. Rangel's too old. Time for them to go. Right. Um, I think you know what you have you know, in Mississippi and, and across the country. You know the the, the Republican you know party. There's a real schism where you have a. Uh, you know, the, the, the far-right Tea Party versus the establishment. Here, it, it's not so much that. I mean, there's definitely uh, a lack of, you know, lack of unity here for sure. You know, I, I think, like, party organizations, which are on the wane, I mean, certainly showed that uh, that's still very true. I mean, the Bronx Democratic Party was full-throated behind um, Adriana Espaillat. I think they only upped the vote total for Espaillat in the Bronx by a few hundred votes from 2012. I know Espaillat won the Bronx, and they could brag about that, but it's not really that impressive. Uh, I mean, the divide you saw in this race is really like the Washington establishment versus the local establishment. The Washington Democrats were completely behind Charlie Rangel from the get-go. The congressional delegation, Schumer, um, you know, everyone outside of Obama, basically. And the locals, um, you know, maybe Charlie, you know, had, had started to alienate them a bit. You know, they saw Escobar as a rising star, and I think they, they saw it in their political interest to get behind him. And so it was definitely messy. I think the one thing is, you know, you'll see a little bit more unity after that, especially since it seems like this will be Charlie Rangel's last term. He said that before, but it, it, this one seems like, He'll go out on his own terms. So I think you'll see, you know, the, the factions start to unify a bit. And then, you know, come 2016, if there's an open race, then you'll see that the blood start to pour again. And then we'll see what, you know, someone like Bill de Blasio does in, in that instance. And what about the, what about the consultants from the consultant perspective? Who comes out looking like, um, you know, as, as the, as the forces? Is it the same? I mean, the Working Families Party was not really involved in this race. Mm. Um, right? I mean, did I get that wrong? But, uh, Neil Quatra is, uh, is considered uh, allied with the Working Families Party. Uh, you know, I'm saying some of the people with Charlie Rangel at the same time, there were people from the Working Families Party. Also on the SBIOT side. I mean, there was, I guess the progressive side was on both sides here. Yeah, the progressive side was definitely, uh, split a bit. Though a lot of progressives certainly, you know, WFP endorsed SBIOT, but did it kind of late so that he didn't get the ballot lines. So I think it was a bit of a half-hearted endorsement, in my opinion. Um, I think, you know, in terms of consultants, I mean, Neil Quatra, Quatra comes out looking very good out of this. I mean, Metro, uh, Public Affairs is firm. You're doing very well. 
And, you know, he, he really was a mastermind of this race. I mean, Mercury Public Affairs did wrangle as well. You know, they, they deserve a lot of credit. Red Horse, which is a, another rising firm, had a lot of victories, actually suffered a, a rare high-profile loss for them. They were with Espliot. So, you know, do you, if you're looking at labor unions, I mean, you know, winners, uh, 1199, which I wrote today, you know, the healthcare workers union, another big win for them. George Gresham kind of going against the prevailing wisdom of other labor leaders and sticking with Charlie Rangel. Um, losers, United Federation of Teachers, uh, once again, does not back a winner in a high profile contest. They're with Esfayat. Obviously, they, there was Bill Thompson last year, and they just seem to be swinging and missing repeatedly. And the Hotel Trades Council, which, which has been, you know, winning a lot of victories in terms of getting deals for their workers outside the political realm. But really, they haven't had a profile winner in, in a while. They, they went all in on Christine Quinn last year. You know, they, they struck out there and they struck out again with Esplayot. So, um, yeah, I think some unions like 1199 is looking like the preeminent power right now. And then there's some consultants who are looking very good after Tuesday. Okay, so Ross, uh, last question for you. Any other races out there that you thought particularly interesting? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, Espayat now is going to be running for re-election in his own. In no, but, the, but the ones that happened on Tuesday, the the congressional ones. Oh, 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 Tuesday. Um, you know, I don't think there's any any earth shattering races in New York. I mean, Kathy Rice, you know, won easily, and Lee Zeldin won easily. I mean, I think out in Suffolk County, you know, you may see a seat in play there. Um, you know, I, I think up in, up in the uh, North Country, you know, the 29-year-old uh, Stefanik, I mean, you know, she had a very decisive win. Um, you know, she, she, the Democrat there, Wolf, doesn't look terribly strong. So, you know, the Republicans could have a nice pickup in the North Country and send a 29-year-old former Bush aide into Congress. That's certainly nice for them. But definitely, like, Wrangell Espiazzi, I think, dominated New York on uh, Tuesday. No, no question about that. Well, thank you very much, Ross Barkin, for the politicker and the observer. Thanks for, uh, at the same time, knocking newspaper endorsements, uh, giving us <laughs> the the real the real inside story of the uh, New York Thirteen Part Do. So sure. thanks for thanks. Jo- welcome us. Uh, thanks for joining us again on Spoon Class. Thanks and uh, this is Spin Class sponsored by Beckerman. And just uh, closing up, as I mentioned, there was uh, a good night for Jewish Republicans in that uh, in New York. Lee Zeldin uh, made it to past his primary. Also, Bruce Blakeman in the fourth district uh, taking on Kathleen Rice. So you have two Jewish Republicans now running for Congress in Long Island or on Long Island, I should say, uh, each uh, with the different dynamics in the race. Kathleen Rice, certainly a formidable fundraiser, but it's a district that before Callum McCarthy had always elected Republicans, Callum McCarthy. And the first district had long been a longtime Republican district that had also uh, but has been held by Tim Bishop quite ably uh, as far electorally over the last couple of years. Uh, another interesting race out there is in Oklahoma and uh, why, you know, we talk about group dynamics out there. So in Oklahoma, in a similar way to here in New York, where it's not enough to just be a Democrat, it's not enough to just be liberal. You got to be really, really progressive. You got to be really, really hardcore uh, out there in order to really uh, make your way in the Democratic establishment these days. At least that's how it seems. Uh, in Oklahoma, it's quite the opposite. You got to be really, really conservative. And you have a congressman named James Lankford who was incredibly conservative, uh, a, a minister, run a youth fellowship camp. I'm really uh, about as rock rib conservative as you could possibly think of. And you pit him against another conservative, uh, T.W. Shannon, who was the speaker of the Oklahoma House of Representatives. But Shannon had this interesting thing for a Republican. He is half African-American and half Chickasaw Indian. And the Chickasaw uh, Native Americans, Indians, are a very large tribe in Oklahoma. And Shannon was kind of embraced by the conservative. He's ultra conservative as well, embraced by conservative groups around the country as being uh, this, you know, this uh, new face of the Republican Party. And a lot of them and the polling kind of said, oh, this is too close to call. So there are so many conservative groups that really got behind Shannon and felt that Lankford was going to that they could beat Lankford, who was a part of the House leadership. And uh, Lankford uh, didn't just avoid a runoff. He ended up at 57 percent of the vote. And uh, not, I mean, really, really walloped and beat Chen by 22 points. Yet another example of the polling 
being off. We talked about it with Eric Cantor, the polling being off by, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 points in that. Well, the polling was way off in this race as well. Langford really cruised to victory and did it on the back of the fact that he was relentlessly attacked and unfairly attacked uh, by conservative groups. Another just yet another time where Republicans really go after their own uh, with a vengeance and uh you know, one of those uh, strange things out there. We had that actually in the – we mentioned Elise Stefanik uh, up in the North Country. Uh, that was helped by about a million dollars in spending from Carl Rove's group. She was helped. Uh, just to get back for a second, I just uh, – with regard to that race with the independence primary, you had Nan Hayworth against Sean Patrick Bologna. And this might have been the Department of Bad Timing for Sean Patrick Bologna because uh, – and only in New York type of story, you had a – Independence Party primary, 20,000 Independence Party voters, but only 2,000 show up. About 1,000 registered Independence Party voters in Kyrgyz Joel, all Satmar Hasidim. And voting in that in that uh, race, they could probably have turned out close to 1,000 or at least 500, at least 600. Uh, the It seems that the most of them did support Maloney. However, the turnout was very, very light. That is because Sean Patrick Maloney married his partner – in a ceremony last Saturday, and perhaps that was what caused Curious Joel to not go come out and vote for Maloney as they had in the past. That could have cost him the Independence Party and the Independence Party line in that election. So only in New York, only in America, folks, uh, can something like that turn the time, uh, turn the tide of an election. And we are out of time. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class only on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. JM in the AM dot org and please dive in for Ail Yefrach, Gilad Shaar, and Naftali Frankel.